0: Hi, welcome to MediatorPodcast.com, a podcast and video series about mediation, negotiation, and collaboration. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a divorce mediation expert in St. Louis, Missouri. During this episode, we will discuss conflict resolution for nonprofit associations with former IRS auditor Mike Gregory. Mike is a mediator in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is the author now of 13 books. Regarding various topics, and he also has created the collaboration effect. He's a frequent speaker and uses mediation techniques to de-escalate situations. Welcome, Mike. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank so you. we kind of chose this topic because you do a lot of kind of conflict resolution. I don't know if you call it mediation or call it conflict resolution, but you're brought in to do a lot of facilitating communications with parties that may not agree. And so, just for our listeners, kind of creating a reference point, let's just talk about what is mediation and or when would you need a mediator? What types of situations?
1: Well, mediation is really A process where parties come together and work together to resolve an issue. And they bring on someone to facilitate that process, who's called a mediator. But the parties make all the decisions themselves. In arbitration, an arbitrator makes a decision. In a a legal battle, a judge or jury make a decision. In mediation, the parties come together, facilitated by a mediator, and the mediator helps the parties listen to each other and work together to try to resolve the issue. There are three major types of mediation, evaluative, facilitative and transformative. Under evaluative mediation, oftentimes that's an attorney or retired judge who gets involved in the legal nuances of the issue between the parties and will come back and actually say to the parties, I think if you go to court, this is what I think will happen so some folks don't even consider that mediation who are purists in mediation, but that's evaluative mediation. And then the parties can work together with that evaluative mediator to figure out what they might want to do to try to resolve the case without going to court. A second type of facilitation, a uh, second type of mediation is called facilitative mediation. In that situation, two parties come together. They have a specific issue they want to work on in order to resolve the issue, hopefully without going to court, for example. And when they come together to discuss this issue, the mediator typically sits down with both sides ahead of time independently and determines, is this a good case for mediation? And if it is, the mediator would say, yes, let's go forward. And if not, the mediator may say, there's no reason to go forward. And I'll come through with an example on that in just a moment. But If both parties seem to be amenable, they're willing to move off of their position, they're willing to discuss the issues, they're willing to present what their interests are, and they want to work collaboratively to resolve the issue between the two, that's facilitative mediation. I do a fair amount of that. And then there's what's called transformative mediation. You oftentimes see that applied in family law where in transformative mediation, they're out to transform the relationship between the two parties. If they don't happen to solve the specific issue, that's okay. We're trying to transform relationships between the two people. If we can do that, then we can move on to try to facilitate whatever the issues might be. So for example, in family law, they might the, a mediator may come forward and say, well, let's focus on the children and what's going to happen with the children. And if both parties can de-escalate. And develop an element of trust, focusing on the children. That's a very positive way to then move forward with the other, other elements associated with divorce. But now coming back to the facilitated mediation, I want to share a story with you. Um, I was involved with a Fortune 100 company. There was almost a billion dollars involved. It was a valuation issue. There's a billion dollars in tax involved. So I think of the valuation issue was very significant. And in that situation, I met with one of the uh, the parties and. With that particular group, there was the CEO of the company, there were three members of the board, that was four, and then there were a total of uh, eight other attorneys and other folks that were there. And I discussed with them what they'd like to do going forward and what their position was and what their perspectives were. And when I got done with that, I then contacted the corporate counsel of that Fortune 100 company and I said, I can't mediate this case. They said, why not? And I said, because your CEO is so position-based, the CEO wants 100%, wants revenge, wants the other side punished, and uh, doesn't want to move off of the position of your firm. If that's the case, you need to go to court. But I tell you what, I'm willing to be your mediator if two things happen. One, the CEO is not part of your team. And two, if we reach an agreement with the mediation between the two parties and your team, That the CEO will not undermine the decision that's reached amicably between the two parties. And the corporate counsel listened to that and said, OK, OK, we can do that. Who's going to tell the CEO? And I said, That's not my job. My job is to let you know what it's going to take if you want me to mediate in this case. And two weeks later, I got a call back, and the call was from that corporate counsel. And they said, Yes, Mike, we want you to mediate on this case. So I went forward and mediated on that case as a facilitative mediator. And we set it up for eight hours. Uh, It actually lasted 12 hours. And in the end, we had a signed agreement between the two parties on the overall uh, issues and what was gonna take place going forward. Now, they still had to bring it back to their legal teams and dot the I's and cross the T's. But we had an agreement in principle with major points. Then it was up to the attorneys to draft that up at a later date for a contract between the two parties. But it means both parties have to be willing to move off their position in order to uh, have a successful mediation. And then there are other times when folks bring me on board and they say, Mike, we want you to be a mediator. And I talk with one party. And after I talk with them, they'll say, actually, Mike, we don't want you to be the mediator. We want you to be part of our negotiating team. So then I'm involved with looking at our side and how strong it is and where we have weaknesses and point out we have weaknesses. I've never found anybody else. I've never found a case yet. That's 100% and zero. I just haven't found it. So I point out weaknesses that we have just by asking questions. And then I look at the other side of what they have, and I ask questions there. And here, I'm like the person who asked the 600-pound gorilla questions. Oftentimes, I don't even know what that is when I get started. But I'll bring that up in the discussion. And Now, for the first time, it's been thrown out on the table. But timing is everything. And understanding the parties and who's who and being quiet. And listening and letting the parties talk is really the key.
0: Well, and I think that there is some, you know, in any mediation, you're bringing two parties together, whether they're in divorce, whether it's a workplace dispute or an issue. And I think that some of the misnomer of people is they think that the mediator is going to come in and solve all the problems. But realistically, that is a person that is helping you or the parties come up with different ideas and ways to, it's quite, sort of like brainstorming for possible solutions. It's way more complex, but in theory, you kind of first have to get that uh, those parties to understand that you're not here to tell them what to do, that you're here to help them think about ways that they can communicate and um you know, get, collaborate to come up with a solution that may not be the best for both parties, but it certainly is a way to move forward.
1: So there's a, there's a very common model that I use. And I, I use it different ways and different forums, but sometimes I've asked folks, I'll sit down with them and I'll say, it's after I've listened, first I have to listen to them. And then by I listening to them, I build trust. And then I'll say, let's just make it simple say there's one issue, just for simplicity's sake. And I'll ask them, say, okay, with this given issue, what are the facts? Okay, what are the facts for that issue? Now, what's the emotion you have around this issue? Because sometimes people are very emotionally attached to a given issue. Sometimes they don't care that much. There could be multiple issues. Again, I'm focusing on one, but uh, give me what your feelings are related to the issue. Not what your feelings are about the other party, that they're an SLB and I don't like them. That's not I want to know what are your feelings around this issue and why? And there are very personal reasons oftentimes why they have these feelings. And then I ask them what their interests are. And I ask them to write this up uh, in a document. And then I ask them, to, I take a look at it and I, I edit it because it usually has language in which is not neutral. It's very biased. And I say, can I edit it? And I make it into a more neutral document. And then I ask them if, if, as I talk to them about it, then I ask them if I can help them narrow it down to one piece of paper, eight and a half by 11. So even on that uh, billion dollar issue, we got that entire billion dollar issue on one piece of paper, eight and a half by 11 for each issue. There there are only a few issues there. I've I've done this where we've got up to 12 issues. But for that given issue, what are the facts? What's the emotion around the issue, the feelings and what are your interests? And jot that down to one piece of paper and make it neutral. What that does, what that does is it forces them to think. And what are the biggest parts? There's all kinds of detail, but what are the biggest parts? And I'll ask them to say, what are the three biggest elements on the specific issue for you to help them really narrow it? You can get into all the weeds and remember something and remember when that happened. And you know, let's just focus on the issue. And that helps them to really come into a mediation, having thought about it, written it down, and then I'll ask them, and most of the time this works, I'll ask them if I can. Share this with the other side. Now, I've, I've helped them edit it and make it neutral. And now we're, we're going to share that with the other side. So each side can read where the other side's coming from. And for the first time, they typically actually look at the other side as not the devil incarnate and somebody I hate. But, OK, I didn't know this person felt that way or uh, could present this in such a neutral manner because we've never been able to present this to each other without thinking we're gonna to have to fight with each other. So that helps set the tone where they're for the first time really listening to each other. And that's that's a start of the system.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, we've talked about a lot of different terms that people may not understand. But I think that most of the time, um, and we'll define some of them, but most of the time people first need to be heard, you know, so they have all of these issues. Mm-hmm and sometimes i just have to be heard like you understand that you did this to me you understand that you know i didn't feel good and that and then you get down to the real issues once you can kind of be heard and say okay i can let those things go but um some of the the terminology that we've talked about beliefs values uh positions you know let's let's break some of these down a little bit because to most people all of these terms seem like the same term, you know, and they there's not a distinguishing piece of it, but in mediation, these things become very important of how you communicate with people during the mediation.
1: Well, let me, let me take a, uh, an issue that everybody will agree is divisive in nature, abortion. And if I say abortion, we'd already know there are two sides where both sides stand relative to that, right? And both sides know their position. Their positions are based on very strong beliefs that go very deep with them. On the other hand, they both have values. And we, we want to focus always on values and not beliefs. So in values, we talk about respect and trust and being straightforward and open and accepting and being responsible with one another on what on this topic we're going to talk about. And when we begin to talk about values, things come up like, we don't want to have unwanted pregnancies. We don't want to have kids who are going to be throwaway kids because parents don't want them. How do we we help nurture homes where people are going to be loved as they grow up? When you begin to focus on the values behind this, folks can work together to find ways to resolve what those issues might be an, ex- I'm from Minnesota, there was an experiment on what I just talked about here in the Minnesota legislature with the governor and the House and the Senate on this type of conversation. And that allowed them to proceed in a way that they could, one, talk to each other, which is very, which there wasn't good dialogue before that, but talk to each other and then focus on what their values were. And then what can we do to address the areas we, we feel that we're in common with one another? So I just bring that up as, Values. Uh, I've mediated between gangs. These are people who've killed each other, right? And I, I, I have a common interest question that I ask relative to listening, and that is, what would you like to have happen? And with one gang leader, he couldn't tell me what he wanted. He didn't. I don't think he knew what he wanted to have. He just knew he wanted to stop. Uh, he had lost a, a close relative and other relatives who had been murdered, and so had the other side. And in this process. As I worked with him, at one point, this gang leader said, if I reach an agreement with the other side, I'm dead because members of my own gang will kill me. And then he said, if I don't reach an agreement with the other side, I'm dead because the other side will find a way to kill me. So either way, I'm dead within a year. Mike, can you put me in a witness protection program? I said, I can't do that. I have no authority for that. No, I can't do that. But let's work with this a minute. Who wants to kill you within your own gang if you reach an agreement? And he identified two people's names. So I said, well, right now you're negotiating on behalf of your gang. What if we bring on you plus those two, and then let's bring on three other people for a total of six. And with the six, you six collectively are going to work on the negotiation with the other gang. And they came up with a, let's call it a peace treaty, between the two parties on a division of where the line will be between these two gangs which allowed a de-escalation and no longer violence between the, the two different parties. So even in a very difficult situation like that, and I've got a host of questions that I've got something called a pocket guide of the collaboration effect, but it's about connecting relationships. That person had to really believe me and trust me. So I had to do a lot of homework ahead of time to learn a lot about this person in the background. And law enforcement could tell me all the negatives about this guy. But within the community, there are people had lots of positives about this guy, too. And so learning people are not zero, one, black and white, uh, right and wrong. People are, we're, we're human. We have good parts and bad parts within us. And part of it is reaching out to the values of the good part to work with the other party and both sides, in this case, to resolve those issues. Now, those two parties were never in the same building at the same time, just because of uh, conflict there. So they were brought in at different times and had discussions. And this, this lasted a long time. That little sound bite I gave you lasted a year. But eventually we had a, a peace between these two parties.
0: Well, and when I try to look at um, beliefs, values, and positions, I kind of talk to people like the position is the top one. I have a position that I need to stay in this house because of this school district, because this is where my family knows, this is what I love. And then there is a belief that this house will be the best. This house will be the best of every other house. And then if you go to the values and you get them down to that level, you can say, okay, well, but how would you feel in the house? Well, I want to feel safe. I want to feel protected. I want to feel like I know people. And then, you know, we try to shift and say, okay, well, if you could have those same things, but be in a different house, would that still work? And I think that, you know, that's part of what you're kind of talking about. People are so heavy into their positions that they can't see that there's common grounds at the, the value section of, uh, you know, you and I may have the same value of safety, of being in a comfortable house, but it could look very different. Um, and so that's what we kind of talk about in some of the mediations. Obviously, you're talking about things that are even on a bigger scale, but it it, it also introduces a concept that mediation is not just about when you're sitting down with the parties. You know, if you have uh, domestic violence or other types of violence involved, there are extreme protocols that you have to do to do anything in person or anything even to you know, have those people not even in the same room. Sometimes it's just caucus style. So people will be in different rooms and you're going between different rooms. But mm-hmm. another thing um, that I think you, you kind of led into was really about this listening concept. And it's one of the most important um, conflict resolution skills but talk more about it because as I've talked to you through this process, it has really, you know, listening is always important. We talk about it in business, we talk about it, but it is very different when you're talking about it as a way to mediate conflict and to communicate. You know, listening is sort of the absence normally of communication, when in reality, when I talk to you, it's almost the essence of communication. And so talk to me more about how you use listening to, to help people.
1: Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up three people to you. Uh, first is Erica Garms, and she wrote a book called The Brain Friendly Workplace. And then I'm gonna bring up another person, John Molitor. He's the Associate Dean of the Medical School at Michigan State University. And I spent a day with him looking at brain scans and different things. And then I wanna bring up Rick Hansen, Rick Hansen is with the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a neuroscientist and psychologist. The reason I bring up the Greater Good Science Center, if you go to that site and you put in key topics, let's just say listening, and neuroscience, you can get the latest thoughts on that written in lay language that you and I can understand. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I work with them. I've been working with them for a number of years. It's now been over seven years. So I come back in a couple of sound bites. At the top of our brainstem is the amygdala, about the size of your thumbnail uh, or uh, an almond, and you have two of those at the top of the brainstem. And when you start to get angry, you produce certain chemicals and hormones that they flood the bloodstream with those chemicals and hormones. You have six to ten seconds to stop that from happening. If you don't, those chemicals and hormones are in the bloodstream and they'll stay with you for up to 22 hours or until you have a sleep cycle. So once they're in your bloodstream, they're there, and now it's very easy for you to go off again and get angry because they're there. But on the other hand, in the front of your brain is the prefrontal cortex, and that's only 5% of the mass, but it's 25% of the energy, and nobody multitasks. The brain does one thing at a time. It can turn off and on quickly for different things, and we can overload the prefrontal cortex with too much. So they've learned You can clear the prefrontal cortex with 10 minutes of mindfulness or meditation, prayer, or reflection. It's very healthy to do that for at least 10 minutes a day. But the prefrontal cortex will override the amygdala. So, knowing that when you start to feel the trigger, you start to get angry. Sometimes, like if you're at work and you start to get angry, you're not going to let yourself lose your temper. So, you force yourself to not let that show and get angry. You're going to play inside, you might be churning, but on the outside, You're looking calm. Well, the prefrontal cortex overrode your magdala when that happened. So now when you're in a conflict, I'm back in here. Knowing this, when you begin to feel the trigger, there's things you can do. As a minimum, you could just say, and you can talk to yourself. There's there's a process. And the, the process is, with talking to yourself in the third person, you can call me, Mike, Mike, don't let yourself get angry. Mike, stay calm. For some reason, they don't know why. If you use your own name, it helps better than just saying, I'm not going to let myself get angry. But if I say, Mike, don't let yourself get angry, that helps. I wrote an article on this that's in the Hong Kong lawyer, as of all things, I wrote an article on this with how you do this process. But an optimum method is what's called the 5-15-10 rule. And the 5-15-10 rule is breathe in for five seconds, hold it for 15, and let it out for 10. When you do that, you give yourself a surge of oxygen. If you do this several times, you actually put more oxygen in the brain, and that has a calming effect on yourself. Actually, I'm going to do this with you. So I'm going to ask you as an action item. I'm going to use my watch. And when I say go, I want you to breathe in for five seconds. Okay, and then I want you to hold it for 15. So ready, set, breathe in slowly, expand the diaphragm, nice deep breath, and now hold it. Now You're not used to holding your breath. So 15 seconds is going to seem like a long time for someone who hasn't held their breath like this on a regular basis. You're about halfway there. And when I say now, I want you to let out very slowly for 10 seconds. Ready, set, now. So let it out very slowly for 10 seconds. We're almost there, about over halfway. And you're there. That's the 5, 15, 10 rule. Now with that, it's not like if you're a coffee drinker, it's not like you just got a big Chug of caffeine. No. But if you do this multiple times, two or three times, and the fact that you're concentrating on it, what are you doing? You're not talking, you're listening. So when somebody's starting to tick you off, and you know that and the trigger's there, I can do the five, fifteen, ten rule. They don't even know you're doing it. You're just you're doing it yourself, and you're giving yourself a plug of oxygen in the brain. Now, sometimes you don't have time for that. So you're going into a meeting, you're walking down the hall. T- you've always heard. Take a deep breath or take three deep breaths. Those are fallback alternatives of what you could do. But by doing this, you can calm yourself. And the key then is if I can calm myself, calm the fire, then what I can do is I can focus and and I can tell myself, focus on listening. I have a post-it note right here, bottom of my screen. And on this post-it note, it says, focus on being interested, not interesting. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to be interesting, I'm going to tell you a lot. But if I'm going to listen, I'm going to focus on being interested. I'm going to ask questions. And because I'm asking questions of the other party, they now are having a chance to be heard. And we know from neuroscience, if you've been heard, you're more receptive to listen to the other person. So when I give a keynote on this topic, I'll say the keynote is, it's not about me. But then I say, it's all about we. It begins with me. And the beginning with me is, I need to be there to ask questions. You know, I, you, you talked earlier about the collaboration effect, and I've got this little pocket guide. If anybody sends me an email, I'll send them this pocket guide in electronic form. But inside here, it says, for listening activity, listen with 100% attention, ask open-ended questions, and check for understanding. Now, you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, then under listening actively, I have a series of questions. I won't read them all to you. But the first one I've already used, what would you like to have happen? That's my favorite question. Then I have, what worries or concerns do you have? What would it take for you to feel satisfied? What have we not covered that you want me to know? Because we have this is as we go along for a while. Um, What can I do to help you? Uh, are there other concerns or problems? Those are the kinds of questions to ask and listening. And then once you've heard something, we've all took a class at one point in grade school with how to write a newspaper article, who, what, when, where, why, and how, think about the who or the where or the what or the why. Why is my favorite question, why, why? Or a statement I'll use is tell me more, tell me more. I don't quite understand, tell me more. And by doing that, people will express to, the, to you what they want to say and once they've fully been heard they feel like they've really been heard then they're more receptive to listen to you or the other party
0: well because and it's it's very interesting because you a lot of what we're doing as a mediator is listening to both sides i think that also part of our facilitation of that mediation is understand that when you're in high conflict Sometimes you're not listening. You're just trying to prove your position. You're trying to support your beliefs. You know, you're trying to win. You're trying to to prove your um, why you've been wronged and things like that. And I think that that's why we we will constantly um, reiterate what we've heard. So we hear something and say, "Okay, what I've heard you say is A, B, and C. Now, why is that truth?" For you, or what you know, like all of those questions, I think are great for the mediator. And it's also about um, trying to help the parties listen. But there's also, you know, when you're talking about conflict in a mediation, you're always. I mean, I don't, I don't really think we've ever been through one personally where it didn't get escalated at some point. You know, whether it was really yelling, you know, like a lot of times you set the parameters up at the beginning of how we're going to conduct this mediation and how we're going to be respectful. But sometimes, you know, voices get raised, you're, you're working through the psychology of working through something doesn't just mean, okay, I'm done with it. You know, it, it's, it's having those conversations in a safe environment. But if you have a party that comes in with a really strong belief or situation or position, and starts to escalate it. What are some of the things that you do in not just listening, but other things that you do to kind of de escalate and get them to continue to listen and discuss the issues at hand?
1: Well, one of the things you just commented on, I'm just going to reiterate it with just slightly different terminology, but help bring this home is when the other party has spoken, there's a lot of emotion there. So when they put forward their facts on a given issue and their feelings about it and their interests, They're passionate. So oftentimes what I do is I listen to that and I'm gonna paraphrase, summarize, and empathize with them. And then I'm going to say what I heard them say. My goal is to say it better than they said it themselves. That's my goal. And I'm gonna reframe that in neutral terms. And when they hear it in neutral terms, they go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. That's it, that's what I mean. But if someone has uh, the magdalas kicked in. They flooded themselves. They're angry. They're they're yelling. They're upset. The first thing you have to do is you want to make sure you don't take it personally. You know you have to decide whether you're going to get angry or not. And when I'm mediating, I've made a I've made a decision. No matter what happens, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get upset. I have to be this active listener that we just talked about. I need to slow myself down. I'm a fast talker. I get going. I'm passionate. I'm talking about the things I talk about, I have to force myself to slow down. When I go into a mediation, I pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And in that prayer, there are some lines that say, seek not so much to be consoled as to console. Seek not so much to be understood as to understand. And I put myself in that mind frame before I go into the mediation, because I want to center myself and control the fire and slow myself down. And I want to be there to be empathetic with the party I'm working with, so that as they hear me, I'm just the person who's here to help. I'm not trying to make anybody right or wrong, them right or wrong. I'm just trying to help. I pass no judgment. It's really key that I'm not judgmental. I'm a I'm a judgmental kind of guy. If I, I took Myers Briggs and Myers Briggs testing, I'm a, a ENTJ. The last letter J. I'm judge, I reach I reach judgments right away. It's easy for me to do that. Make a decision and go but you know what? That's a major fault. So when I was a manager, I came through and said, I really, when I learned this, I had to slow myself down and make sure I went back and ask other people for opinions and circled back around before I made the decision because I can miss things. I have blind spots. Now as a mediator, I look at it as I'm not making any judgment. They're making all the decisions. I try to keep myself to be courteous. I want to work with the party so that they are saying, yes, if I ask them questions, And I get them to say yes to questions back up here with neuroscience. The fact that they are saying yes produces certain chemicals and hormones, which make them more receptive towards moving towards reconciliation. And to get myself through it, just like I talked about earlier, Mike, calm yourself down. Mike, don't get upset. Mike, demonstrate listening. I talk to myself with positive self talk. So don't take it personally. You decide whether to get angry. You need to use active listening, slow down, be empathetic. Beware aware of your own triggers. Don't pass judgment. Always be courteous. Work with the other party to say yes and give yourself positive self-talk because that will help you get through the process.
0: Well, and I think that a couple of things that you said is very interesting because um, we're doing some mediation training uh, recently. And because of the environment that we're in, everybody has heightened anxiety or <clears throat> concerns in their personal life. And we talked about, as a mediator, I think that if you're going into a situation that already has conflict, this isn't about you. This isn't, you know, like, if you've had a bad day, if you're on the brink of, you know, some issues, you really do have to get your mind as the mediator right before you go into that situation. Because um, it does get volatile sometimes. And if you're the one That's, you know, losing your cool, losing your temper because of that outside factors that are happening Uh, in some contexts, I think that people would be understandable, but in the other, you're there to provide a service and it really isn't about you, um, which is hard for some people to kind of get on. But when you were talking about some of the questions that you have as suggestions of what people should ask this is from a guide the collaboration effect um, a pocket guide that you've created that mm-hmm. people have access to that mm-hmm. gets them thinking about how these questions could parlay into their mediation are there more insights that you have from this effect because this is you know, when you talk about neuroscience, this is really deep rooted in how people communicate and how people uh, start to resolve when they disagree, you know, so tell us more about maybe how we could get access to this, as well as what other insights would it provide for us?
1: So the collaboration effect is really about three things. It's about connecting relationships, listening actively that we've talked about, and then educating judiciously; those are the three things. And what this does is this leads to building bridges to negotiate closure. Now, in corporate America, what I've learned is the people in the C-suite they want closure. But oftentimes, in in larger organizations, the vice presidents, they want certain recognition and rewards and bonuses tied to their given work in their given division or their entity or whatever it might be. So that's taught me I need to have a decision maker on those kind of issues where I have the C-suite people there who want closure. And you talked about uh, people getting angry. Typically in my business sessions, they don't overtly become angry and bang on the table, but sometimes people are going to lose positions or they're going to lose face or they're going to lose bonuses. So they have a lot at stake personally, but they're not going to demonstrate that anger. They may try to subterfuge the mediation process or negotiation process because of something that has a personal benefit to them. So what I've learned is the first thing we have to do with the parties that are there is really do our homework on connecting relationships. That means on social media, that means within your network. I want to learn everything I can about them and find ways in which I can connect with them. I teach a class at the uh, MBA school, University of Minnesota, Carlson School of Management. Um, They have uh, a course which is involved with mediation and conflict resolution. I'm not a professor, but I'm a lecturer, and I come in with two different three-hour sessions. In the first session, I give them some background on me, and I tell them, for our next session, I want you to do the research on me on social media from what I've told you, and I want you to tell me how you would try to connect with me next week when we come in here. So it's a Thursday night class. The next Thursday, they have to get their write-up into me by by noon, and then I read through it, and then I look for, did you find ways to properly connect with me? I've been doing this five years. And what I've watched is the students have gotten so much better at this on social media. So I, I'm in Minnesota. I'm, I live uh, about a mile and a half away from the state fairgrounds. Okay. So, like one of the students last year said, Well, Mike, I would bring up to you, have you ever been to the state fair? Now, see, this person looked in geography and where I am. And I said, Yes. And then that's all a person had to ask me. And I said, That was a really good question for trying to have a relationship with me and connect. Because I said, Yes, I go there twice a year. My wife and I have been going there for over 35 years. We go there with our children. We now go there with our grandchildren. So I'm talking about all this stuff, about connecting with why I like the Minnesota State Fair. What you've done is you found a way to connect with me, that we are now people, and you're letting me talk. So what are you doing? You're listening. So a connecting relationship is number one. Listening actively is second. And then third, you have to do your homework your homework is how do you educate judiciously? And unlike on TV where one person's going to overpower the other and all these things take place in argument, I come back with, when you, and you're an expert witness, Melissa, and I've been an expert witness in court. When you go before court, you want to build trust with that decision maker, that judge or that jury. And when you do that, you want to relate to them. You want to present things how they want to hear it. You don't want to tell them that I'm right. You want to tell them, this is what I did. This is why I did what I did. This is a very, this is the reasonableness you're presenting. You're not saying that, but you're presenting how reasonable you are as a person, how good you are as a person, how you can smile and relate to them, how you can uh, be there just as another person, like they would like to go have a, a drink with you at the end of the trial and say, wow, I like that Melissa Gregg, you know? Well, you want to build that relationship so that when you're educating them, you're there to help the decision maker make a decision. When that happens, that allows you then to begin the negotiation process. In the negotiation process, you need to think about your position. You need to think about their position. And somewhere between those two, you have, if we don't reach an agreement here, we go to the next level, whatever that might mean. The IRS, that's going from exam to appeals or appeals to counsel. Okay. It might mean elevating within management from the examiner to the examiner and the manager or to the second level manager, different folks that you may have to take to another level. But along the way, you said, this is my best alternative to a negotiated agreement. The acronym for that is BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So let's just say I'm at zero or party A is at zero and party B is at 100. In party A, they've talked with the client and said, if we don't get at least 45%, we're going to go to the next level. So their BATNA is 45%. I then work with my clients as a matter of negotiation and say, let's develop three other computations. We want to make a computation for 45% and a computation for three others between zero and 45%. So now we have a total of five different computations. As part of the negotiation process, I can connect. I can actively listen. I educate judicially with position where I'm coming from. And then I ask the other party with what we've discussed. This is what I'm now thinking, whatever it is, but I want to hear what you have to say. And I've done this with issues, even with the IRS, on an issue where the IRS said said my client owed $16 million. And they did their homework extremely well on the educating judiciously and got the IRS to say yes, eight times. And then the question was offered. Our appraiser said this number is between 30 and 35%. At IRS, you were at 10%. But we presented eight reasons why that number could be higher. And we now think it should be 35%. But before we go any further, what do you think? There was a pause. And the IRS agent responded and said, could you live with 34%? To which my client said, yes, I could. So it went from $16 million owe to a $4 million refund. Well, that attorney that i worked with before we started this whole process thought the whole thing here was kind of bunk but they're willing to try it and it worked then the attorney said wow come and talk to our law firm so i came and i as i say this this is several different cases mixed together so i'm not talking about a particular client but said come and talk to the law firm they had 200 attorneys and i came and spoke to 100 attorneys and then after that they said oh i went to harvard i belong to the harvard club in boston so i've been invited out there twice to give two hour presentations on just this collaboration effect I just talked about and how it's based on neuroscience. It works, but you have to do a whole host of things. It doesn't just happen. So connecting relationships, social media, network, et cetera, and find some way to try and connect. Two, listen actively. Three, educate judiciously. Two, negotiate closure. So you're going to build a bridge to negotiate closure. Even a, a famous general from China, Sen Tzu, on a book called The Art of War, which is presented at all of our military academies, says, build your opponent a golden bridge to retreat, across, to, to retreat across. So I look at that as, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to build a bridge for them to retreat, save face so that they can retreat. We never have to go to battle and war.
0: Well, and I I think that that is very helpful information. I think that when we started this, we were trying to kind of create ways of how mediation could be used uh, in not-for-profit groups, and and I think we've given a variety of ways. You've given some really good uh, stories that we've talked about because a lot of nonprofit groups will deal with boards of directors. And they will deal with populations that maybe they're servicing that are different diversity, different demographics than maybe the people that are on the boards or running the operations. Mm -hmm. Is there are you know, are there any more um, things that nonprofits can do using some of these mediation techniques or should they focus on any of these aspects because you think that it really helps them the most?
1: The answer, my perspective is yes. I, I've worked with uh, several different boards, so with the board of directors. And when I worked with them, I've asked them, for example, well, who's your ideal volunteer? And this is working. This is now working with a series, a whole bunch of boards. I was involved with strategic planning, with specific companies, and also with a, a group of them. And with this group, you know, one person said, "Well, I like the volunteer that uh, they're retired. They're willing to put in 40 hours a week every week. Come in, volunteer for our organization." And then I said to the other folks there, and what do the rest of you think, are those out there? They said, well, they were, but they're not anymore. And the baby boomers that are out there, generation X coming along and generation Y millennials, they want to come in and do something for a short period of time. They want to see some results. And those kind of volunteers, they really don't exist anymore. So, and that's just me asking questions. And then as I asked them, you know, what is your mission? What is your vision? They have these, what are your goals? And we talk about the strategies of where they're going and why. And they come up with various tactics. And then I ask them who their clientele are. And oftentimes the not-for-profits, the, the boards are very white. okay. And the clientele oftentimes with working with lower income are often very diverse, people of color. And so I asked them, this is what you want to provide. What is it that they need and want? And how do we know that? And are you coming in to collaborate? Collaborate means we're working on something together with a goal that we both have in common. And oftentimes, a not-for-profit comes in with, this is what we're going to do for you, which is not, I'm a partner with you. I want to work with you. I want to connect with you. I want to listen to you. I want to educate you with what we can do and how can we negotiate closure. But rather, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And that's the wrong approach. So as I talk with them, they may need the the focus of a given group may have been X, Y, Z. I love a commercial right now for ARP. American Association of Retired People, and their commercial says it all started with a retired school teacher who was living in a chicken coop. That's how ARP started. We get a commercial here that's running on this all the time on this. Well, think about what does ARP mean to you today? Oh, I'm going to get coupons for uh, various places because I'm over uh, age 55, or I can't remember is it age 50 or 55. I'm over that, so it doesn't matter anymore, and I'm an ARP member, but the point of this is. ARP has changed and they'll offer things within the community for their ARP members, but they're still all about taking care of ARP members. And especially those who are lower income. So I come back with, you have to change with not necessarily what you want to provide, but with what do they need? And how do you know that? It's because you sit down with them and you work with them and you connect with them. If you're just going to come in on the once one time, once, uh, in a great while and do something and go away that may be okay for that volunteer but what about your organization and how do they know you care and that you want to be there for them next time and can you help them also find other resources of things they might need so there's one group I'm with, i was i helped them the strategic planning here in the twin cities hands on twin cities they coordinate i don't know some 200 or 250 volunteer organizations to say We don't, but we know somebody that does. Or we can get you to the right source. Well, that's listening to your clientele. So, And then sometimes, looking at conflicts and not-for-profits, you have people who donate. After they donate, they think they now have power. Because they have power, they want to tell you what you need to do, which may not be what your clientele want. So what do you need to do with them? You need to connect with them. You need to listen to them. You need to educate them. And that will help de-escalate the situation so that you can work with those big donors that have specific goals and say, but here's what they really need or want based on what you see on the ground, which may cause them then to change their focus. But you don't go in there and tell them that's not what we're going to do because that's not what they want. This is what they want. That will be met with a negative response. But by working through the collaboration effect with that major donor or other volunteers that come in and say, this is what I think we should do. Listen to them, hear what they have to say, through time, educate them and bring them on board with this is what we're about. And maybe this is not for them. And it may be you'll get somebody who's a really passionate, dedicated volunteer because they want to go forward with this organization going forward.
0: That's awesome. So I could imagine uh, many nonprofit or even for profit boards and groups would love to reach out to you either to be a speaker for their organization um, or to maybe even work with some of their strategic planning, what are some of the ways that they can contact you and what type of programs are you providing right now to the community?
1: Well, I'd be happy to be a speaker. And twice a month, I offer presentations at no cost. I'm happy to do it at no cost. I mean, I'm a professional speaker, so I'm a keynote speaker. I'm also a workshop speaker and I get paid for those. I'm also a consultant, and I do a certain amount of work with not-for-profits, which is uh, free, no charge. But then on the other hand, I also work with some not-for-profits on their strategic planning, which this does involve uh, some time on my part. It's a longer-term commitment, and I help them over a longer period of time with their strategic planning. And in that sense, they get a better handle on their big picture with their board and with the staff. I'm, I'm doing the strategic planning typically with the staff, and then a workshop of a partial day, or it could be some partial days with the board, but the decision making is all done by them. Again, I'm facilitating with that process. My goal is to help them be better with what they're doing. I'll give you my direct phone number. My direct phone number is 651-633-5311. And my email address is mg at mikegreg.com, M-I-K-E-G-R-E-G.com. And for my professional speaking, I've opened up a new business in that arena back in 2018. And that's at a website called collabeffect.com. C-O-L-L-A-B-E-F-F-E-C-T, collabeffect.com. There you can see some videos of some presentations that I've made. And I can take a look at my blogs on either site with uh, blogs that I write on weekly. There are now over 250 blogs. If you go to mikegreg.com, They're organized by different categories. So for example, one category is just working with difficult people, and there are over 50 blogs of how to work with difficult people with different situations that might be helpful for the situation that you have with a given uh, party that you're working with or want to be working with and currently are in conflict with.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we're gonna also provide ways that you can directly contact Mike um, if you have questions, he uh, you know I've known him. For many years, he has always been very open to having discussions with people. He's been very open with sharing his knowledge um, and really helping people just understand how to work better with each other. And his communication skills and tips, I think I have used um, not only in mediation, just in general. Sometimes I get too to the point, you know, like I go right in, let's get right to the meat of the problem. And a lot of times that's not as effective. And so after talking with uh, Mike for years now, uh, I think some of those are some of the important pieces that I've uh, accumulated was really connecting with people, really talking with them, and really listening. And so I appreciate Mike all of your um, great tips and suggestions, and we'll provide ways that people can reach out to you. So thank you so much for your time and i'm sure we'll see you again
1: okay thank you very much melissa my pleasure to be here today Take
0: care. thank you